You are listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. for joining us for this week's message from Senior Minister Roger Hendricks. Our current subject matter, as we've been talking about the gospel unchained during this message series, as we're examining the essence and the power of the pure gospel as it was first described in the Bible. In fact, if you have your Bible with you, you can turn to an incredible book, a book entitled Galatians. It was the very first letter that was written by an early Jesus follower named Paul. We call him the Apostle Paul, who had had his life drastically changed by the gospel. And Paul was constantly telling others about the power of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. He consistently described the gospel. In fact, that would usually be his leading uh, point, his leading teaching to any church that he visited or could influence. For example, when he wrote a church that was meeting in Rome, uh, he wrote this. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Some of your versions of the Bible might say the good news of Jesus. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. In this series, we're seeking to learn about this powerful, unchained gospel as it's described in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Now, during the past two weeks, we've looked at Paul's warning to these early Jesus followers uh, in the first two chapters of this letter to not believe in any false gospels. Okay, by the way, we're, we're taking uh, six weeks to go through this incredible book, but I've been listening. I've been reading a bunch on Galatians. I've been listening to what other preachers have to say about uh, Galatians on podcasts. I've been following some guys that, that they take six months to teach the letter of Galatians. Aren't you glad we're not taking six months? Okay, uh, so we're kind of we're just zeroing in and condensing it down to one week per chapter, which means that it's hard to hit everything in each chapter. So we want to encourage you to be reading this book and be picking up some of the things that we just don't have time uh, to develop. But in Galatians 3, Paul turns up the heat and warns against relying on anything else but the true gospel. In fact, there's so much in this chapter, I started to think, how can we condense it into our time together? And so to help dig into this rich chapter, we're gonna examine two contrasts and two questions. Two contrasts and two questions. The first contrast we wanna look at today is the contrast between the spirit and the flesh. Or maybe some of your translations of the Bible say human effort. So between the Holy Spirit and human effort. And so that's to help us reflect and be impressed with, once again, the power of the gospel and specifically the the power of the good news that the Holy Spirit is given 
to those who become Christians. And for us to rely on the Holy Spirit as opposed to our human effort. Let's see how Paul describes this in Galatians 3, verse 1. He says, you foolish Galatians. How about that to start with? You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus was, Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Or some translations read, by means of human effort? Now, this is a strong challenge in these. And if you keep reading, he, he asked five questions in a row. But, but it's a strong challenge to these early Christians in this region, which is modern-day Turkey of Galatia. And Paul doesn't mince any words. He, he says, have you been so foolish? And then he asks, who has bewitched you? Now, I don't think that Paul's referring to a 1960s or 1970s TV comedy, okay? Or do I believe he's advocating witchcraft? And yet, Paul is ticked off that these Christians in Galatia had so quickly turned from what he had preached to them just the previous year. Paul says, when I led you to Christ, he's talking to them because he planted the church there, planted the churches there in Galatia. He says, I proclaimed Jesus Christ and him crucified. And by the way, truly understanding the cross of Jesus Christ is when we initially learn about the, the power of the gospel. And as we learn about the power of the cross and the message behind it, as we learn about the power of the resurrection, our hearts will be drawn to this good news. The good news that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the same spirit that, that miraculously uh, brought Jesus' dead body back to life is the same spirit that is promised to live within each and every Christian. And for each and every Christian to live that new life in Christ. Now that's power. As I think back to when I first really understood the gospel, the good news that really filled my heart with hope back when I was a 19-year-old struggling college student, was the good news that God was going to give me His Spirit, His Holy Spirit, to live within me, to empower me to live a different life than I'd been living, to live a changed life in Jesus Christ. And I remember the first time I understood that, I, I was so Encouraged. At first, it was like it seemed too good to be true that God was going to put his spirit in me to change me. That was incredibly good news. And as I fast forward many years later, as a 50-something-year-old guy who at times still struggles, it's good news to know that I don't have to just settle for being the same old, same old person but with the promise of the Holy Spirit that there is hope for me to continue to change, to be more like Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but that's, 
that's good news. And Paul's upset that these Galatian Christians who had began their Christian life trusting the gospel and the gospel alone, as we talked the last two weeks, to save them, are now beginning to rely on their own human effort to grow as a Christian. You see, Paul had planted these churches, so he knew what they had been taught, and he had emphasized to trust in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet, after Paul left that region and went on to plant other churches, some false teachers had come in behind him and led them astray and and taught them that they really needed to find new human efforts to grow in their faith. As one Christian writer, Timothy Keller, put it, they had initially trusted the gospel to be made right with God. There's a, there's a big biblical word for that, justify. To be justified means, literally, if you break it down, it means just if I'd never sinned, okay? To be justified means that you are declared, you're made right with God. And so these, these early Christians had trusted the gospel to justify them, but there's another uh, biblical word, it's big. We don't use a lot of big words here, okay? But, but it's kind of interesting from time to time to reflect on some of these words that uh, a lot of smart people use. But anyways, the word sanctified uh, means that you are set apart, that you're made holy. And Paul says, here's the problem. You trusted the gospel to make you right, but you're not continuing to trust the gospel to make you holy. He says, trust the same gospel that made you right with God to change you and to help you grow in Christ. You know, as Timothy Keller says, another way to put that is instead of trusting God's spirit to change you, you just start trusting, trying really hard. Now, maybe some of you have fallen into that same trap. To help illustrate this contrast and how silly it is, I wanted to share something I learned from history. And I've shared this illustration before, but I want to share a little bit more about it that I learned as I dug a little deeper into it. About 150 years ago, there was a guy who was known as the Great Blondin. Okay, he wasn't blonde, but he was, that was his last name, okay? And uh, this guy was incredible because he was the first man in history on June 30th, 1859, to walk across a tightrope across Niagara Falls. Now, that would have been impressive, but what was even more impressive is this guy just didn't settle for walking across the tightrope once. He started doing tricks. He started walking across blindfolded. He started pushing a wheelbarrow across. On one occasion, he rode a bicycle across. On another occasion, he carried one of those old-fashioned cameras, you know, across the tightrope and then set it up in the middle of the tightrope and took pictures of the crowd that was watching him. He was amazing. But then what really caught my attention was later that summer of 1859 in August, he talked somehow his manager into riding piggyback on his back across the Niagara Falls. Now, I want to say to you, his manager, Harry Colcord, is a great example to us of what faith really is. It's one thing to say, yeah, I believe Blondin can walk across the tightrope across the Niagara Falls. It's one thing to say, yeah, I believe he can do it. It's another thing to say, I will entrust my life to him. You see, that's what faith is. 
is when we entrust ourselves to another. His manager, Harry Colcord, I'm going to keep saying his name because I think he's the most impressive guy of this story. He understood the difference between believing in someone and truly having faith, putting your trust in someone. And Paul said to these, these Galatian Christians, he says, when I taught you the good news of Jesus, I taught you to trust in the gospel message. And yet now, to grow in your faith, you're not trusting in Christ or the Holy Spirit, you're trusting in your own effort. It would be like Charles Blondin, the manager of, uh, excuse me, Charles Blondin's manager, being carried halfway across the, the tightrope across the Niagara Falls and then getting halfway across and saying, okay, Charles, I'll take it the rest of the way. Put me down. Now, I don't know about you, but I, first of all, I, don't, I wouldn't have got on his back. But, uh, but secondly, if I had the courage and the faith to get on his back, I'm certainly not gonna halfway through say, okay, I can take it from here because I don't have that confidence in myself. And Paul's saying to the Galatian Christians, he's saying, God's taken you this far by trusting in the Holy Spirit and the gospel. Don't try to now take it upon yourself. It's just as ridiculous as the manager saying, let me down now. Keep trusting the Holy Spirit. Keep trusting the power of the gospel. Paul's saying. Now, I don't know about you, but as I shared earlier, I'm, I'm inspired by Blondin's manager, that he demonstrated true faith, that he was willing to entrust himself to another. Scripture calls us to truly live by faith, to truly entrust our lives to God, to not rely on ourselves but instead to rely upon God in faith. To not rely upon, uh, as, as we're gonna see now as we keep reading in Galatians 3, another trap they fell into is they began to rely on the Old Testament law. To not rely on the Old Testament law, but to continue to rely on faith. So that's our second contrast in Galatians 3, is the contrast between faith and law. Now, this section of Scripture, it's kind of long. You'll see that in the message notes if you follow along. And honestly, if you read from many translations of the Bible, it's very complicated, kind of dense, and it's tough to, to figure out what's going on here. So I tried to find the easiest-to-read translation I could find. In fact, I don't know if you knew it. There is a translation of the Bible out there now called easy-to-read translation, okay? E-R-V, and that's the one we're going to read from because, to me, it's easier to understand. So let's, let's look at this. Now, the significance of this passage, and I think it's important for us to, to realize, we're trying to understand, we're trying to get in the context of, of this letter that was written 2,000 years ago to some early Christians, and we're trying to understand what's going on here. But what's important for us to understand is Paul is going to point them to an example of somebody who lived 2,000 years before that, a guy named Abraham. So we're going to read about a guy that lived about 4,000 years ago. And yet, Abraham, which seems really appropriate to talk about him on Father's Day, he is known as the father of the faithful. 
Now, the significance of this and the reason why Paul points them to Abraham is, as we looked at last week, these young Christians that lived in this region of the world, Galatia, uh, they didn't have a Jewish background. They were what the Bible calls our Gentiles. And yet they had been falsely taught that to really be right with God, that they needed not only to trust in Christ, but that they needed to become Jewish. And yet Paul is going to use Abraham, the father of the Jews, the oldest ancestor of the Jews, to point out to them that they didn't need to rely on the Old Testament law, that they didn't need to become Jewish, that there was a promise to Abraham that extended to them, and the promise to Abraham extends to us. Let's see what he said in verse 6. He says, the scriptures say the same thing about Abraham. Abraham believed God, and because of his faith, this faith, he was accepted as one who is right with God. So you should know that the true children of Abraham are those who have faith. The scriptures told what would happen in the future. These writings said that God would make the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, right through their faith. God told this good news to Abraham. Some translations even read God told the gospel to Abraham before it happened. God said to Abraham, I will use you to bless all the people on earth. Abraham believed this, and because he believed, he was blessed. All people who believe are blessed the same as Abraham. Now, let's pause for a minute and try to unpack some of the things in this very interesting passage. Now, this passage, there's something significant that's said here. In verse 8, it says that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, was proclaimed to Abraham 2,000 years before Jesus came to earth. Before the gospel really was unveiled, it was proclaimed to Abraham. It was promised to Abraham that through him and his seed, some translations read, or singular descendant, which we find out later in this chapter in verse 16, he's talking about Jesus Christ. Now, it, if you don't know this, it's interesting. Uh, in fact, in two of the gospels, it goes into great detail to point out that Jesus descended from Abraham, okay? So Abraham, uh, the seed of Abraham, the singular seed that he's talking about is Jesus. And Abraham believed this good news, that all people on earth would be blessed through him and his descendant. Now, the amazing thing about Abraham's faith, and why I think it's, Abraham is a great example for us in faith, is that he trusted this promise that through his descendant, God was going to bless all people. And yet, if you know the story of Abraham, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, they had not even had their first child. And they're getting very old in age. And God promises them, through your descendant, Abraham, I'm going to bless all people. He doesn't even have a baby yet. And here's the amazing thing. Abraham believed God. Now, that's faith. You see, it's one thing to believe something because you see it. It's altogether different thing to believe what you can't see. And the Bible says that's the essence of faith, to believe 
and be sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. You see, I believe in all my heart, with all my heart, that Jesus is real, that he is the son of God, that he came from heaven to earth and he died on the cross for me and for you. And on the third day, he was rose from the dead. But I've never seen Jesus. I've read about him. But I believe with all my heart, I have faith that he's real. Do you have faith in that which you can't see? Abraham had faith. Another lesson that we can learn from Abraham is that at times he struggled with his faith. If you go back and read his story, at times he doubted. At times he tried to figure out how things were going to work out. He tried to take things into his own hand to, to try to make God's promises work. He struggled with his faith. And I'm grateful that Abraham struggled with his faith because sometimes I struggle with my faith and sometimes you struggle with your faith. And yet Abraham is an example to us because Abraham continued to trust that God was reliable and that he would deliver on his promise even when Abraham had trouble figuring it out. The good news is for us that we don't have to have everything figured out to have faith. If we trust that God is reliable and we put our trust in him, then we can be like Abraham, be a person of faith. Think about that. You know, I'd rather have a small, struggling faith in a dependable, strong God than a strong faith in a God that didn't exist. For example, let me give you an example. When you're driving down the road and you're driving across one of those suspension bridges, would you rather have a strong faith in an unreliable bridge? Or would you rather have a little faith in a very reliable bridge? I'd like to have a little faith in a reliable bridge. I want to know that bridge is going to stand up for me as I drive across it. The same's true with God. At times we might struggle, but if we continue to look to the reliability of God, the reliability of his promises, then we can be, as Abraham, a person of faith. Let's keep reading in verse 10. He says, but people who depend on following the law to make them right are under a curse. As the scriptures say, they must do everything that is written in the law. If they do not always obey, they are under the curse. You get that? Did you get what he said? If you don't obey all the laws, you're under a curse. So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by the law. The scriptures say the one who is right with God by faith will live forever. See, it appears that these Christians in Galatians have been bewitched, as Paul said, by some false teachers who were saying that although they had become Christians by faith in Christ, that to really grow spiritually and to really be right with God, that they needed to rely on the law of Moses, which was taught in the Old Testament portion of the Bible. As we talked last week, these false teachers taught to be really right with God, that these people needed to obey the Jewish law. In fact, they needed to become Jewish. They needed to embrace the, the, the Jewish teachings of, of uh, circumcision and dietary laws and various ceremonial laws. Now, Paul's not saying that it's wrong to obey. In other words, it's not wrong to be circumcised. That's, that's not what Paul's saying here. But he's saying it's wrong to trust in things like circumcision or obedience of Old Testament law for your salvation. 
He points them to Abraham, who was declared right by God by faith. And if you think about it, Abraham was declared right by God, declared right with God by faith before the practice of circumcision even began. Abraham is where he and his son Ishmael and Isaac were the ones that were first were circumcised. And so even before circumcision was a practice, Abraham was declared right with God by faith. And he was declared right with God before the law of Moses was given. That didn't happen until centuries later. Paul goes on to write in verse 12, he says, the law does not depend on faith. No, it says that the only way a person will find life by the law is to obey its commands. The law says we are under curse for not always obeying it. But Christ took away that curse. He changed places with us and put himself under that curse. The scripture says anyone who is hung on a tree is under a curse because of what Jesus Christ did. The blessing God promised to Abraham was given to all people. Christ died so that by believing in him, we could have the spirit that God promised. Now, did you catch what this passage is saying? It's saying the problem with trusting the Old Testament law or any law is that no one can keep it. In fact, the Old Testament law, even if you study the law, it has provisions in the law for sacrifice for sin. So even the law itself has provision that people aren't going to be able to keep it. Now, again, the point of Galatians is not to quit being obedient but the point of Galatians is don't trust your obedience to save you. Let me see if I can give you an example. Because some of this is kind of up in the air and you're going, okay, I'm having trouble tracking with you today, Roger. Okay, so bear with me. It's important that we understand that we're not saved by perfect obedience. To help illustrate this, I wanna just give you one command from Scripture. Okay, this is one of the most famous commands in Scripture. In fact, in fact, we, we describe it sometimes as the golden rule. Jesus taught it. We're following Jesus, and so we want to obey what Jesus said. We're not, again, Galatians is not anti-obedience. It's saying just don't trust your obedience for your salvation. In, in Luke chapter 6, verse 31, this is what Jesus taught. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. That's the golden rule. That's a, good, that's a good way to approach life, isn't it? Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. That's one command in Scripture. Now, I want to ask the question, how many of you have always perfectly obeyed that command. It's a simple command. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Please raise your hand if you've always perfectly obeyed that command. No hands? Well, you've just broken the golden rule. You guys are a bunch of rule breakers. Last night, I had someone raise their hand. I said, man, I want to learn from you. You know, as I look back on last week, I broke that rule. There were times I was selfish. There were times I was insensitive. There were times I didn't treat other people. I tried to, but the truth of it is I mess up, and you mess up. 
Now you might say, well, what's, what's the big deal? Why are you spending a whole week talking about this? I already understood this. Well, well, do you really? Have you really embraced this in your heart? Because you see, some of you say, well, I'm not, I'm not trying to obey the Old Testament law perfectly. I'm not trying, and some of you think there were 10 commandments in the Old Testament law. Does anybody know how many commandments there really were? 600. 600 plus commands in the Old Testament. Now, we just looked at one command in the New Testament. We all admitted none of us have kept that perfectly. Can you imagine trying to base your salvation on keeping all 600 laws of the Old Testament? There's no way. There's no way. And yet, when I listen to people, I still think down deep so many people are trying to rely on some form of law for an assurance that they're going to go to heaven someday. Just recently, there was a celebrity who passed away, and, and in one interview, he, he was asked why he did so many good things. He says, because I want to go to heaven. And you know, when I, when I and, and, and bear with me here, because this might sound a little bit morbid, but, but I think that when, when you go to funerals and you listen to what people say, you really hear what's going on in people's hearts. And when I go to funerals, I, I hear often people will say things like, well, we know he's in heaven or we know she's in heaven because, well, they were a good person. They were a good husband, a good wife, a good father a good mother, a good provider, a good friend, a good Christian. They're such a good guy. Now, I know, I, I, I know the golden rule says that we need to say good things about people when they die because we want people to say good things about us when we die, right? But the point is, I think down deep, a lot of people really are trusting and trying to keep and live up to some moral code for the assurance of their salvation. One of these die, days, you and I are going to die. I'm not trying to be sad or gloomy on this Father's Day, but the truth is we're all going to die someday unless Jesus comes back before that happens. And the most important question that we have to wrestle with in this life is what are we trusting with for? our salvation? What are we trusting in for having life after this one in heaven? In other words, what are you trusting for your eternal security? From time to time, I'm called upon to preach at funerals. And you know, the biggest compliment and the strongest assurance that I can give someone at their funeral or to the crowd that's there is that they trusted Jesus Christ. You see, that's where Paul says you need to put your confidence. Because the truth is, whether, whether you look at the 600 commands or you look at the 10 or you look at the golden rule, we all break law. None of us live up even to our own moral code of goodness because we're sinners, the Bible says. So the question is, if we can't trust our perfect obedience to law, if we can't trust our perfect obedience even to the, to the golden rule, then the question is, what are we going to trust for our salvation? And I submit to you today what Paul's saying in Galatians 3 is the only thing you can trust 
is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of you will probably outlive me. And when you go to my funeral someday, I don't want you to say how many years I preached here at Southwest or how many people I baptized or how many weddings I performed or any of that good stuff, because honestly, none of that matters. All, all that I want you to say at my funeral is, you know what? He trusted Jesus Christ. That's what I'm trusting. That's who I'm trusting. How about you? What are you trusting in for your salvation? Now, if you've been paying attention, our time's up, but there's two questions that beg to be asked. The first is, what's the purpose of the law? If you can't be declared right with God by the law, then why in the world did God give the law? Look at Galatians 3, verse 18. He says, for if the inheritance could be received by keeping the law, then it would be, not be the result of accepting God's promise, but God graciously gave it to Abraham as a promise. Why then was the law given? Has anybody ever asked that question? Okay, if we can't keep it, why was it given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. That's Jesus Christ. God gave his law through the angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and the people. What's Paul saying? He's saying the Old Testament law is like a flashlight. And you're going, what? The Old Testament law is like a flashlight. If you're driving down the road some night and it's dark, and all of a sudden your car stops, it dies. Unless you are an extremely well-trained mechanic that can listen to an engine and with your ear know what's going on, okay? And my dad was one of those, okay, my late father. He, he was a master mechanic. In fact, he was so good at listening to engines that people, before they would buy a car, would even ask my dad, could you just ride in the car for 30 minutes and tell me what's wrong with it? And he could tell you just by listening to the engine. But most of us aren't that well-trained. And so most of us, if our car dies, the only way we're gonna know what happened is we pop the hood and you pull out a flashlight and you say, okay, a belt broke, a hose bust. The flashlight shows where the problem is, but the flashlight's not gonna fix that problem. It just shines the light and exposes where the problem is. The same is true of the Old Testament law. The law, Old Testament law points out the human problem that we're rule breakers, law breakers, that we're sinners. And just like the flashlight, the Old Testament law doesn't fix the problem, the Old Testament law just points out the problem. In fact, if you keep reading in Galatians 3, he says the Old Testament law serves as a guardian or custodian to lead us to Christ. It won't fix our sin problem, but it'll point out our problem, and it will point us to the one who can fix the problem, and that's Jesus Christ. A second question that begs to be asked, if through faith we can become part of Abraham's extended family, even if we're not Jewish, then how can we know for certain that we are part of the family? How do we know for certain that we have the inheritance? Let's keep reading. It's obvious that, again, that the, these false teachers had created insecurity in the hearts of these early non-Jewish Christians thinking that they were going to be left out of the blessing of Abraham. And yet in the midst of that question, Paul writes this emphatic answer. He says, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. 
And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Paul writes to them and to us, and he says, you don't have to be a natural descendant of Abraham to be adopted into his family. That happens through faith in Christ. In fact, Paul says that the promise is that if we have faith like Abraham, if we've been baptized into Christ, that we have been clothed with Christ. You see, baptism is the faith response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, in baptism, God has designed a means not only for us to believe in the gospel, but to experience the gospel. And because Jesus is the promised descendant or seed of Abraham, if we are clothed with Christ, then we become a descendant of Abraham as well. We become an heir to all the promises. That's the inheritance that's available for you and for me. You see, in Christ, we become the rightful heirs. Now, here's the question. Do you have the assurance that you are part of Abraham's family? Do you have the assurance that your sins have been forgiven and that you're part of the inheritance? Well, how can you have that assurance? By trusting Christ and being clothed with him in baptism. In the early church, individuals were baptized, they were dressed in white to signify that they had been clothed with Christ, that they were no longer trusting themselves, but but the one who was perfect in his obedience. Last Saturday, Danielle Sundermeyer was baptized into Christ here at Southwest. And when I sent her photos of her baptism this week, I told her that I hoped and prayed she was having a good week. And she wrote back, she said, I want you to know that I've really had a great sense of peace this week. I was so happy to hear that. And she says, here's my prayer request, that all of my family would come to know, love, and surrender to Christ. You see, Danielle has peace because she's been clothed with Christ. She's part of the family. How about you? I'm so grateful that God has given us practical ways to trust the gospel. In baptism, we can experience the gospel through the death, burial, and resurrection. And then God in his wisdom has given us what Christians have been observing weekly for 2,000 years, and that's the Lord's Supper. And in the Lord's Supper, when we take the bread and we take the cup, we're reminded of who we're trusting in. We're not trusting in our perfect obedience because we aren't perfect. We're trusting on the one who was perfect in his obedience. We're trusting the one who was willing to be cursed so that we could be blessed. As we take communion today, let's remember that it's in the gospel and the gospel alone that we're saved. As we take communion, let's remember the one who was willing to be cursed on our behalf so that we could be inherited and, and adopted into Abraham's family 
and have all the blessings that have been promised. Let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you for your word and for how powerful it is. We thank you for this rich book of Galatians. And I pray that as we unpack these passages that we will really apply it to our life. And I pray, Father, that everyone here is asking themselves today, what are they trusting? What are each one of us trusting for our salvation? Thank you for chapters like Galatians that point out we can't trust ourselves, our own obedience, our own perfection, but that we have to trust Jesus totally. Help us during this time of communion remember the one who was cursed on our behalf so that we could be blessed. It's in Jesus we pray.